With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. I'm really particularly happy tonight to have with us T.J. Gentle. He's CEO of SmartFurniture.com and a member of the President's Small Business Advisory Board. He's here to show us some of the things he's learned about improving the customer engagement and improving profits along the way. As we always do with all of our guests, TJ, welcome to the program, and please tell us a little bit about yourself personally before we get into anything else. Well, thank you very much, Don, and I, I appreciate you having me. Um, as you said, uh, I'm TJ, General President and CEO of SmartFurniture.com. I have uh, been CEO with Smart Furniture for about five years. Uh, prior to that, I was with the company. I, I started with the company around 2004, um, and through that time period, I guess I have become a, a – I, I was always sort of a technologist, but I've learned quite a bit about furniture over the last 10 years. When I, uh, when I started, I didn't know a whole lot. Uh, believe it or not, before that, I was a corporate lawyer uh, helping uh, small businesses, uh, startups, and uh, uh, technology companies raise money, uh, do acquisition structure, uh, strategic partnerships, and uh, was a corporate lawyer for a while. And uh, through that experience, I guess I, I, I ran into a lot of small businesses, and um, that's when I met up with the founder of Smart Furniture, uh, who had started the company in Palo Alto uh, around 2001 and moved it to where uh, we are now headquartered in Chattanooga, Tennessee, around 2000, uh, 2001-2002. And... Uh, uh, I quickly uh, met up with this guy who's his name's Stephen Colt, one of the smartest guys I've, I've ever met, uh, and a very, very dear friend. And he, uh, uh, we've sort of worked together to uh, to build a company the, the the way that we wanted, I guess, uh, the way we felt like it ought to be built. And uh, uh, at Smart Furniture, we have a 
we're blessed to have a fantastic team, uh, very talented people, and uh, uh, most of us love to get up and go to work every day, which is uh, about all you can ask for. I'm, I'm curious. You went from corporate lawyer to corporate executive. What motivated you, motivated you to do that? You know, I, I've, I've, I've had several years to reflect on that answer now. And, you know, the firm I worked at uh, sort of had a track history of, uh, of taking corporate lawyers and putting them into boardrooms and, and the corporate executive. Uh, uh, for example, Larry Klein was a, a partner in the firm I worked with, and he became the, uh, the CEO of Coca-Cola Enterprises, which was at the time was the largest bottler of Coca-Cola in the world. And there were about four or five other examples. And I think the firm that I worked at had a, it was sort of a multidisciplinary approach to, uh, to training. So even though I, I was a corporate lawyer by training, I took lots of, they paid for me to take lots of business school classes and uh, really helped me diversify my education while I was on the job and, and encouraged sort of that business advisor slash uh, corporate lawyer role, and I quickly realized that uh, uh, I was not conservative enough to be a lawyer. I was more of a risk taker, and uh, I, I really wanted to get my my hands dirty. And uh, after seeing so many businesses helping them raise money and become successful, I really wanted to jump in there and do it myself. And uh, boy, did I ever jump in! Obviously, you, you, you jumped right into it. Uh, we were talking earlier, and you said uh, along the way you've made mistakes and uh, um, you've learned from them. But now um, uh, uh, you, you really uh, want to talk about um, uh, how you can improve the uh, profitability and the customer engagement uh, uh, and utilize data. That, that's, that's right. You, you know, I, I think one of the things that, that happens a lot when you when you run a business is, uh, you know, if you have professional investors and board members, is a lot of times you uh, you begin to doubt your own uh, ideas, and you, you you think someone has to know better than I do how to do this or that. And you know, business is, uh, I, I guess, one way to put it is business is not. Um, you know, complicated. It's just a lot of hard work, and you 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 know there, you have to sort of put in the time and the effort to to figure out you know wh where your place is. And one of the the things that I, I learned very early was uh, if if you treat customers the way you want to be treated when you're a customer, uh, the everything else sort of finds works its way out. And uh, if 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 there's one thing we sort of we, we call that the golden rule of customer service here, but that sort of is is, is like the cornerstone of, of what we've built, and what we've tried to do from there is take uh, is to use all the convenience and uh, uh, I guess special uh, special features and applications that we can you know manifest on the internet and to really create a better experience for customers when they try to buy furniture. So at a very basic level, one of the things we've focused on over the last couple of years is, is really getting to know our customers and, and trying to break that down into a, 
a very simple uh, uh, data structure so that we can segment customers. And by segmenting them, and then we ask them questions, you know, if they're willing to answer them, uh, if they're willing to create a profile, some of those questions are, uh, you know, instead of us trying to guess what customers want, if we ask them uh, and, and get an idea of some of their characteristics, uh, that gives us half the equation. What we've done on the other side, and what I, what I think is, as a retailer, is very important for, for any retailer, particularly if they're trying to compete in today's marketplace with, with big companies like Amazon, is I think it's important that you know your products very well. And so one of the things that we've done is taken uh, the thousands and tens of thousands of SKUs that we have and, um, and refine them to the ones that we know best and then break each of those products down into, into what we call attributes. And, you know, for example, if it's a sofa, one of the things that a very common attribute is what style is it? Is it modern? Is it contemporary? Is it casual? Is it traditional? And then we try to rate that relative to all the other products in the category. And if you think about that one attribute, you know, if you can sort of say what makes a sofa a sofa, there are dozens and dozens of data points there. You know, what's the material? What is the, you know, is, is it comfortable? Is it plush? Is it soft? Um, how much does it cost? Is it a good value? How many features does it have? We take all those data points and then we try to match them uh, using a, an algorithm to each of the customer's characteristics. And basically what we've tried to do is, is, is all that is a very complicated way of saying that what we've really tried to do and what we're having some success at is basically treating the customer experience on smartfurniture.com in the same way that you would you would have experienced years ago in a retail store when the sales clerk was very knowledgeable about what he sold and knew the customer. So if you think of sort of going into a drugstore in a small town, you know the, the person who works behind the counter there knows the people coming in, know all the products they have, and they also know, you know, what product's going to be best for that customer's problem. And, and at its essence, that's really what we've tried to do with smart furniture and with the website, is to take all the institutional knowledge that we've created over the years and to make it available you know, at, the, at the, uh, uh, the touch of a few buttons to customers so that they get the best results uh, that, that we, can, we can provide. Now, since we've done that, I think the results have been uh, we, we, we wanted to, we started off doing this because we wanted to take what were fantastic salespeople that we have, and we wish that everyone could experience, you know, if you're ordering on the internet, you know, very, very few people call in. But we have such good salespeople, we thought this, if we could just make our website as convenient and useful and helpful as, the, as uh, our salespeople are, that at the end of the day would, would provide a better customer experience. And, and so far, what we found is when we actually, when customers visit our site and go through uh, what we call smart profile, actually are uh, converting at 10 times, 10 fold, you know, 10 times the rate of a standard visitor. And, uh, and during that process, they typically uh, spend about 27% more. And those, uh, those stats are, are great because 
uh, it validates to me that we're helping people find what they want to find. But even better than that, what we're starting to see now is that um, customers are returning who've gone through this uh, and, and ordering more, and their satisfaction level with the products they're purchasing are higher. So, you know, this is, uh, we think we're on to something, and, and it, it, it really is sort of at its essence going back to the roots of what is the role of a retailer in, in the value chain and, uh, and using, you know, all this technology and all this data we have at our convenience to, uh, to not, you know, muddle the process, but to make it simpler and more intuitive for the customer. Well, if I'm if I'm hearing it right, just so I, I, and that is a very articulate. Well, essence you're saying is you're drawing from the customer more information, which enables you to go back and, and better pinpoint what he or she needs, and be able to uh, deliver a, a, a better sales experience. Well, that that's a that's a much better way to say what I just said, and uh, I would say you know the. The only thing I would add to it is we really want it to be, once they do the profile, we want everything to be intuitive from that point, as if, uh, you know, we're, we're already solving the problems that the customer is going to have before they occur. And, and so, you know, we're, we're using all that information that they give us and all the information we have to really just create a better experience. And the key to that is, you know, getting to know what matters to your customer and then getting to know you know, how the products you sell actually relate to those factors that matter to customers. And that, that sounds very basic, but, you know, in a world where, um, you know, I, I, would, I, would, I would say, you know, if you think about Walmart and what they do, they, they buy lots of products and they put them on the shelves, and if people need a widget, they go there and they get it. And, you know, there are, there are times when you may not want the widget quite the way that Walmart has it, but... If you're going to get it from Walmart, you're going to get the widget the way they have it. And I think that in a world with so much competition, there is room for variety and room for customization. And and uh, and I think that's our role as smaller businesses is to find those areas where, you know, maybe we don't deal in the volume that big big stores like Walmart or, or Amazon have, but we find the other things that, that that make people happy and we make sure that they're available. Well. Uh it's interesting. You, uh, normally, the, uh, large retailers are saying customers are going into their shop, looking at the product, then going online and buying it. Um, you're, you're in effect saying, "Come online, and we'll help you make a more informed decision." I mean, that's that's exactly right. I, I think. I think, that, and that's sort of a when, when I think of why I think what we're doing is unique. We actually want, you know, if you go to Walmart and you need help, good luck. You know, they, they, they can tell you what aisle something's on, but their knowledge of the product is very limited. Can and I tell even you? If, no, go ahead. Finish, no, finish, please. And, and if you go online uh, to Walmart, you know, say for whatever reason you get on the phone and see, you know, that particular product, you can read reviews of what other people have done and other people have bought, you know, that product and what they think. What what I think has happened is Walmart, in effect, has, has, has I guess, outsourced its role in the value chain to customers. 
where customers are, are, are sort of saying, I tried this and it didn't work, or I tried this and it worked. And the difference that we're trying to do is we're trying to anticipate what they need based on our knowledge of the products. And, and, and we, we call this prescriptive personalization. We're trying to basically prescribe products for customer attributes or customer characteristics. Uh, that way, you know, we know our customers well, we know our products well, and, and our role, we see our role as combining those two in a way that's really useful uh, and intuitive for customers. And, you know, I, I, I don't think a lot of companies are doing that, but I do think that in, in the coming years, as, as data, you know, the, the, the big data movement continues to uh, consume more of the technology spend, I think plus of the data scientists that are running these things now, there'll, there'll come a point where you really have to have people uh, as part of the equation who actually understand the products they're selling and, and, and whether that's by, you know, trial and error or really coming down to fundamentally knowing the products uh, and, and trying to anticipate what people need rather than uh, throwing it out there, people try it, and then using ratings um, to, to, to value how good it is. I think, that, I think that ratings are great, but I think that the back end of the equation, I think the front end of the equation is where we as retailers have a role and to try to anticipate need. Well, I have to tell you, TJ, we have a, um, a Walmart near us, one of the large ones, and half the staff does not speak English. They're Hispanic, and I don't speak Spanish. And sometimes it becomes a very interesting customer experience uh, finding someone. Uh, so uh, I, I really appreciate the, <laughs> what you're saying. But let me ask you a question. I mean, uh, you, you mentioned a sofa. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'd like to test out a sofa before I bought it to make sure I could lay it down in it the way I like. Uh, you're, in effect, saying uh, to your customer, we can develop a, 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 from, from this data, we can find the, the sofa that fits you. Uh, you know well, that, that you, you, you right there cut at the heart of, of uh, why it's hard to sell furniture on the Internet. It, it, it's, uh, the furniture is a, is, a, uh, is a very intimate purchase. And you, you, whether you realize it or not, your relationship with the furniture you buy is, is, is very important. And you, you, you always sort of realize that at the point of purchase because furniture is not cheap. And for the longest time, the, the e-commerce industry uh, and, and the, the private equity and venture capital money has, been, uh, has, has ignored the furniture part of e-commerce for that very issue, that, that issue being that people fundamentally uh, want to touch what they're, they're buying when they buy furniture. And then the second issue is when you try to move that across the country, it becomes very expensive. Well, we can only, as an as a, uh, a, a e-commerce retailer that doesn't, we, we have one sort of concept studio. Uh, we don't have uh, uh, retail stores throughout the country. But I think part of the winning formula uh, in the end is, is to make sure that you at least have a location where you can satisfy some of those tactile needs from customers. You know that, uh, and, and you know we've done 
we've tried to come up with creative ways to solve that problem, and I'll sort of outline a few that might be useful to listeners as they think about their business. But one is uh, providing very detailed uh, employee reviews of the product, where they talk about you know things like firmness. They talk about the materials. Uh, we also have a uh, a, a pretty uh, liberal swatch policy, meaning you know if, if people are worried about fabrics, you know we'll make sure we send them fabrics at, at no cost. But fundamentally, there's still this issue of when I sit on it, am I going to like it? And you know the only way for us to really address that with customers is to provide uh, a, a fantastically customer-oriented return policy. And as a as a company that is, is very customer-focused, uh, this is very expensive for us, but what we do is we give customers basically a, 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 a free uh, 45-day return policy, and if they, they get the product, they sit on it, and they don't like it, we take it back and pay the return shipping and refund their money. And, you know, there, there are some exceptions to that that we've had to make over the years because, you know, they're... Some of, some of the things we sell are so expensive or are made to order that it's very hard to do that with. But in general, by having that very liberal return policy and trusting that customers won't take advantage of it, uh, uh, what, we, what we've done, in effect, is uh, you know, we've done the best we can without allowing them to physically touch the product. And believe it or not, our, our return rate is about 2.5%, which... Um, what I've, I've learned over the years is, is amazingly low for an e-commerce company and, and particularly low for a furniture company. So I, I, I think by trusting customers and fully informing them, we help to some degree. I, I, I do think that in the, at the end, when everything is sort of settled, the, the, the way to really solve this problem is to do what we're doing, but to also have physical locations accessible to as many people as you can so that they can touch and feel what, what they're buying and, and that where you don't have to worry about, uh, you know, paying uh, all the logistics costs of moving things back and forth. Uh, there, there was one other point to this, and I, I do think that uh, you and I have uh, uh, sort of have made up our minds that when we buy furniture, we want to, to touch it or sit on it. Most furniture purchases are, are, you know, the biggest uh, in the, the consumer life cycle for furniture is uh, the, the, one of the biggest uh, waves of spending comes in, in the early 30s. That's when people typically settle down, they get a job, they get married, start to have kids, and then they buy furniture. Well, you know, if you think about who's turning 30 right now and 31 and 32, these are people who have done everything on the Internet. You know, some of them met their spouses on the Internet. They, you know, they've broken up with people on the Internet. They've met friends. They've, uh, they've bought everything on the Internet. And this millennial group, uh, they, their perception or their sort of view is that everything should be purchasable on the Internet. So there's a whole wave of, of consumers sort of coming of age and at the sort of beginning of the life cycle of the, uh, for furniture purchases who expect to buy everything on the Internet. Now, they may learn that they want to touch and feel it or test it out, but right now, if, if you're not 
selling your products and making them available in the furniture industry on the internet, you're missing the next generation next generation of consumers because the millennials expect to shop for and buy everything on the internet, and that is uh, that is a massive change that will, will you know ripple throughout the the furniture industry for years to come. Well, TJ, um, two points because we're getting close to the end. Uh, when you say you arrange, uh, do you send uh, your customers to a specific store in their area? Do you have an agreement with them? What do you do? We, right now, we, 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 there are a few cases where we have uh, certain brands that we have. They have concept stores, and we'll send them there. But right now, a lot of times what we'll do is say, this is a store that has it in your area. Go there. And, and we realize that they may actually buy that product from that store, even though it's not us. Uh, and we've just referred a customer there. And we do that pretty frequently when people really want to see a product. Uh, and what, what we've always said is if you go there and you don't get better service than you get from us, uh, you know, if they, if they don't treat you right, come back. But I, I do think in the end uh, the, a company like ours who can partner with a, uh, an existing retail uh, chain that has locations throughout the country uh, and, and make sure that there's inventory available in a, a, across all brands. I think that that you know, omni-channel experience will ultimately be the one that becomes a leader in the industry. I think it will be very hard to become uh, you know, the dominant name in furniture without having you know, the physical brick and mortar stores as well as a fantastic Internet presence. Well, TJ, uh, I want you to come back because we have definitely want to have a longer program with you. But before you leave, you're on the President's uh, Small Business Advisory Board. Uh, tell us a little bit about that briefly. Uh, uh, we do have to move on, but uh, please tell us a little bit about that. You know, it's, it's an exciting uh, experience, and it's sort of, uh, you know, being in the right place at the right time. By the way, I'm politically an independent, which in East Tennessee means I'm a liberal, but uh, uh, by, you know, the rest of the country I'm, I'm very moderate. Uh, a, a lot of what we do there is we, uh, uh, when the president has a particular policy or initiative that he is considering or putting into play, that we actually uh, have a board that sits and talks with senior administrative officials or senior White House officials about how that we see that that impacts small business and particularly our businesses and how that will be viewed uh, or, or how it will translate to, to business and economic growth. And um, for me, it's very exciting to, to be engaged in those discussions uh, and, and it, it's, it's an honor to, to you know, sit at the table and discuss uh, policy with, with uh, leaders in, uh, of the country, and, and oftentimes very surreal. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, you know, these, these folks are, are, are really trying to do what's best, uh, and, and they want economic growth. And uh, what, what I've realized is that you know, businesses have a voice there, and I think the closer we can come to talking directly to the, you know, the White House and the, the administrative officials instead of talking through lobbyists, you know, the more productive the discussions are. So uh, it's been an exciting uh, uh, organization to be part of, and, and uh, I hope that 
have had some impact along the way. Well, um, I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot. If 59% uh, uh, of our audience is either president and or owner, uh, could they email you uh, to express their, uh, get you to express their views uh, in these things? Uh, you know, I, I, I would, uh, sure. I mean, if there are issues, uh, I, I will, uh, uh, I would love to hear from them. I, uh, do you want me to provide you the email address? Or do you want to put it on the <laughs> website? Uh, both. I uh, have them email twg at smartfurniture.com. Twg at smartfurniture.com. Uh, you have to come back. Uh, we have to go to our next guest, but you have to come back. I hope you will. We'll, we'll, we'll talk some more. I would enjoy that very much. Thank you very much for having me. Um, thank you for coming on board. And as I say, we'll definitely have you back. Have a good evening. And you have a good evening. Our next guest should be Mark Faggiano, CEO and founder of TaxJar. Are you hey, on? Don. How are you, Mark? Great. Thanks for having me. Is that a nice Italian name? Yeah, sure is. And uh, you did uh, pretty darn well there pronouncing it. Thank you. Well, uh, well a name like Mazzella, if I didn't do that right. I, yeah, that's I, true. I usually, <laughs> I usually butcher names, but uh, uh, yours was an easy one. Um, <laughs> Mark, we always ask our guests first to talk about a little bit about themselves personally how you got there, a little bit about yourself, so that uh, the audience gets a little bit of a flavor of, of you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, I'm a guy who always growing up knew, wanted to be an entrepreneur, um, or probably more accurately, wanted to work for myself. Um, so finally took that uh, leap a little more than 10 years ago. I did spend a little bit of time after college working in the corporate world, and that sort of validated um, the fact that I, I never wanted to really have a boss um, and uh, work in a, in a big corporate environment. So started my first company about 10 years ago. Um, I've started a handful of companies since then, um, some with uh, mild success, some with um, uh, pretty good success. So I've been able to sell a couple of companies. Um, and my primary focus is um, solving um, pain for small businesses. So I'm really passionate about um, enabling small businesses to um, do what they want to do, which is grow. Um, and there are a lot of administrative, back office types of things that get in the way. And uh, what I really enjoy doing is um, building products online that allow them to get sort of um, pass along those problems to someone like me who can um, can uh, take the burden off of their uh, shoulder and then focus on uh, how to grow their business. So um, that's kind of the, the quick overview, but that's led me to um, founding TaxJar last year. Um, and uh, TaxJar is sort of the perfect example of an administrative burden. Um, sales tax is probably the, the craziest thing that a small business owner uh, could have to deal with, especially if they have an online presence. Okay. Where did you grow up? Grew up in the on the East Coast uh, in Boston, born and raised there. Uh, moved to California um, about 14 years ago and uh, 
came out here to go to grad school and thought I'd be here for a couple of years, but uh, realized how great the weather was and uh, the lifestyle out here and uh, haven't left yet. After this winter, I'm thinking of joining you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I grew to really despise snow. I just couldn't, couldn't take it anymore. <clears throat> so uh, that, was the that was all the motivation I needed to uh, say goodbye to winter and, uh, and just move along. Well, uh, as, as we both know, and as every small business, um, uh, interesting statistic, the average uh, sales uh, uh, footprint of companies in the last four years has, has grown from 50 miles to now almost 90 miles. And mm -hmm. then encompasses a, a, a very large, a lot of jurisdictions. And as sure. you said, um, uh, one jurisdiction has one set of taxes and then another. So uh, tell us what tax jar does. Sure. So uh, <clears throat> that's a great stat, actually. I'll, I'll have to remember that one. Um, tax jar uh, essentially handles what we call post-transactional sales tax compliance. And really what that means is everything that happens after you've collected sales tax. Um, in the grand scheme of things, really nothing about sales tax is easy if you're a small business owner. But if you're apples to apples, collecting the sales tax is the easier part. It's everything that comes after that. And, and what I mean by that is filing sales tax returns. Um, and that's particularly challenging for folks that run an online business or have a brick-and-mortar business with an online presence. Because as, as you said, Don, really you're selling you, – you, once you go online, you're essentially a nationwide company, if not a worldwide company. Um, so um, what a lot of our customers have um, are potential um, sales tax involvement with not only – maybe their jurisdiction, but other jurisdictions in their state, but also with other states too. So um, what we find is that a lot of folks who, um, you know, the more they become successful selling online, the, the bigger the burden grows. So we try to alleviate that um, with a reporting system. It's an automated reporting system that essentially provides a business owner with the data that they need to be able to file the sales tax return in whatever states they have nexus in. Um, and the reason that's particularly challenging, uh, you may hear that and say, well, people keep good sales records and it's probably not that hard. And the, the reason why it is hard is because people these days are selling on more than one channel. Um, they typically have, just as an example, an eBay store, a store on Amazon, they have their own website, they go to some kind of craft fair on the weekend and, and try to sell inventory there. Um, so they've got monies in all these different channels, collecting sales tax in different ways on different channels. Um, and, and all of those have different sales tax implications. Um, so just trying to compile all that data and get the data that you need, some states um, actually require you, uh, a lot of them actually, a lot of them require you to subtotal your sales by jurisdiction. So it's not good enough just to say, okay, state of New York, I collected $1,000 in sales tax this year, here you go. 
the state like New York wants you to subtotal that out by every one of the jurisdictions that you made a sale in. And the reason being is because they don't know otherwise how to divide up the money that you're sending them. There are all of the counties and cities and special taxes that are in New York, all of them <clears throat> have a share of the sales that you've made. So the onus is on the seller, the small business owner, to actually do that work to provide a report to the state. Um, and that's what's um, very, very time-consuming for the average small business, and, and that's what we eliminate with our automated reporting. But I was always, I was under the impression, maybe I'm wrong, that if I sell sell a product uh, on the internet, I didn't have to, uh, uh, and if I wasn't physically located in the state, I didn't have to pay the, uh, do the sales tax. Am I wrong on that point? No, so that so here's how that's changed. Um, five years ago, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. But what's changed is it, so let me let me back up and say, in general, you're correct. But here's here's where the 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 laws are being blurred. Um, what's happening is more folks are selling online, and they're using third-party logistics companies. Um, in Amazon, folks that sell on Amazon are a perfect example. Amazon actually has a service where you can allow Amazon to do all of your fulfillment for you. So you, you essentially have the opportunity to use the, you know, the best logistics company in the world. All you've got to do is send them your inventory. When an order gets placed, they ship it out for you. But the, what happens is, is that Amazon's got this whole network of warehouses all around the country. So they take your inventory that you send to them and then they disperse it to these warehouses, depending on, you know, an algorithm that they have that says, you know, your items sell better in the southwest or, you know, northwest or something like that. And what the states now say, Don, is that, okay, we'll take the state of Washington, for example. I don't care if you've never been here. I don't care if you don't have an employee here or a storefront. If you're storing your inventory here, that's sufficient enough where you need to now comply with our, with our sales tax laws. And that's where the game is really changing because more and more online businesses are using these logistics companies and are you know bumping into this um, to this situation where their nexus portfolio is is growing beyond just their home state. Wow. What I love exactly. About, what I love about this program is I, I learn something new every every show. Um, so, but if if I have my inventory in New Jersey, let's say, I have to I know I have to collect the tax if I sell it to New Jersey. But as long as I I don't use one of these distribution companies, I don't have to collect the tax if I sell a product in Missouri, say. Yeah. So I'd say in general, right? If you don't have your inventory in Missouri, you don't have a storefront in Missouri, you don't have a salesperson in Missouri, you don't um, have an employee in Missouri, uh, in, again, in general, um, you, you probably then don't have to comply with sales tax law in Missouri, which means you don't have to collect sales tax on any items sent to a customer in, in Missouri. But does... Uh Amazon and the other distribution companies, do they tell you, uh, when you when you sign up with them that you've got the collective tax? They don't. 
So, I'm, I'm in shock right now. I tell you. Uh, yeah. So, 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 Don, we hear we. It's sad, and we hear a lot of customers that we get um, at TaxJar are actually folks that are finding out about this, you know, after the fact. So in some cases, pretty long after the fact. Um, so when they sign up for this logistics service, it's called fulfillment by Amazon. They, they, there is, there's nothing on there that says, you know, by using this service, you could potentially be, you know, adding um, sales tax liability to, you know, uh, X number of states. Um, and uh, it's either through the education that we're providing, or um, these sellers are pretty tight networked together. Um, they may, you know, hear it from a peer. Um, but that's typically how they find out. Um, and, you know, of course, worst case is they, they find out from a state themselves that says, hey, look, you notice you're doing a pretty good amount of sales here. Um, you're supposed to be complying with our sales tax law. That, that, those cases aren't as um, many right now, but, um, you know, if you talk to sales tax experts and tax professionals, they expect um, that type of enforcement to go up. Um, and the reason being, um, not defending the states, but look, uh, I'm in you know I'm in California, and this state is, although our financial situation has picked up a bit, um, at the end of the day, they all need more revenue, um, and they are really looking hard at enforcing um, sales tax laws um, as one of the big ways to try to increase revenue. Uh, Mark, uh, I noticed that our last the guest has come uh, uh, on the board. I want you to stay on because um, uh, I want to con continue the conversation. But um, uh, Bill Cummings is about to join us, and he talks about the 13 most common mistakes business owners make. And But uh, I'd like to kind of uh, bring the two of you together. Would you mind sure. holding a second? All yeah, right. go, go for it. Bill, I just... Uh, Unmuted you. Welcome to the show. Well, good or good evening, I should say, Donald. How are you doing today? Uh, we're doing fine. Well, uh, you're on with Mark Fagiano, Fagiano, uh, CEO and founder of, of TaxJar. Um, uh, Bill, you're here to talk about the 13 common, but I want to keep Mark on a little further because I, I'm just learning something very interesting, and um, uh, we'll get to. Uh, get to you and we're also going to ask your uh, your take on this if you don't mind waiting, waiting a couple more minutes while we talk with Mark and then uh, uh, keep Mark and you on, okay? Sure, go ahead. Okay, um, Mark, I want to get back to you because um, th this is kind of interesting uh, uh, to, to me interesting I, I, I like to pride myself I know a lot about small business I've been doing it for over 20 years reporting on small business um, how does your how does your uh, product work so uh, you can sign up for an account with us it literally takes probably about 30 seconds um, and then what you do is you um, essentially connect where you're selling to tax jar so if you're selling on Amazon you can connect your account to us if you're selling on eBay you can connect your PayPal account to us um, and we're, we, we, um, we're integrated with a number of different seller platforms. And then what we do is we pull down your sales and um, 
sales tax um, data and use that to populate uh, reports for any state that you're um, collecting sales tax in. And we automate those reports. They get updated um, every single night. Um, so, um, you know, most of our folks are doing, you know, a bunch of sales every day, if not, you know, per hour. So the reports are always constantly changing. Um, and um, that, that's pretty much it. That's how it works. We use the technologies that these seller platforms um, make available to anyone. Um, and fortunately, we have a bunch of smart developers that are able to uh, make something like that work. And it's using all the kind of latest and greatest technologies um, that, that makes it super easy for, for our users and customers to be able to get the information that they need. Well, how do you charge? Um, how do you charge by number of transactions? Sure. So we, yeah, so it's, we have a 30-day free trial, so anybody can try it for free with no credit card required. And then our pricing is based on um, how many transactions your business is doing per month. So um, our, our pricing starts at $9.95 a month for up to 1,000 transactions. And then we have plans that go all the way up to $50 a month for um, 15,000 transactions. Um, and those transactions are regardless if you're collecting sales tax or not and wherever you're doing sales. So. You know, if it's in your state or out of state or international, each one of those counts as a transaction. And we also have enterprise plans for folks doing more than 15,000 transactions per month. Well, Mark, if some of uh, our people, uh, uh, the name of your, uh, your website? It's taxjar.com. Spell it out. This is radio. Sure, yeah. It's T-A-X-J-A-R. Dot com. If they, if they want to talk to you, yep, they can. Um, they can email me directly at uh, mark m a r k at taxjar dot com. Well, uh, thank you for coming on. I, I really appreciate. I I, I learned something. Uh, I was at a, uh, a briefing in Washington uh, earlier this uh, late in February, and. Uh, uh, there, a couple of tax experts said that uh, they expected that small businesses uh, would see a whole raft of uh, state-imposed uh, taxes uh, on, the uh, on the on internet sales. Do you think that's going to happen? Yeah, I think it, I think as bad as it is, um, it has the potential to get worse. Um, I hate to say that, but um, you know, good your guess you. is as good as mine. Say it again. Good for you. It'll be good for you. <laughs> but well, it, it would, but honestly, you know, um, there's the pending legislation called the Marketplace Fairness Act. Um, it's sitting uh, before committee in the House right now. Um, and um, we've actually come out against it. We're the only company in this industry that's come out against it, even though we would benefit from it. Um, the reality is, is this stuff is it's too time-consuming and too complicated um, and uh, the legislation that they're considering passing would make it a whole lot worse for um, people that don't deserve it. So there's got to be a better way to do this, and, um, and I, you know, our, co our company will survive and still make money, but um, I, I'd hate to see the legislation that's uh, in front of uh, Congress right now passed. Well, on, on that unfortunate note, we're going to say thank you, <laughs> and I hope you come back uh, another time and see how things are going. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thanks so much for the opportunity.
Thank you. About. Bye bye. Bill, thank you for being. Yes, patient. I'm here. I know. Um, thanks for being patient. Um, I've been looking forward to this one. We're a small business. Um, uh, what what I saw was selecting the wrong business entity. The 13 most common mistakes. Uh, we always ask, though, first before we get into that, for our guests to say a little bit about themselves personally, what they do, how they got here, etc. So, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, uh, the name is Bill Cummings, and I'm the uh, president and CEO of a Cummings Financial Organization. We're a, kind of a boutique uh, CPA firm, or financial services firm in in, ta- in sunny Tampa, Florida. And we do a number of things, um, but tax reduction for small business owners. Um, I have a lot of business owners as clients. We also um, we do some financial planning and estate planning as well. But I do a lot of advising and business consulting as well, um, even getting to the point where owners sell their businesses. Um, so I've been in the, in business for about 25 years, and I, I've seen a lot of things. It's interesting you were talking about Internet sales, and I agree with, uh, with the previous caller in that you're going to start seeing all the states coming in as a source of revenue um, because the big box stores also want to be able to do that as well. I mean, they're getting, you know, you go to a store, you pay sales tax, so why should you not do it on the Internet? Um, so one of the things as a, as a CPA is that, you know, it's a constant, constant struggle every year to figure out ways to, to lower your tax bill because that is, as a business owner, usually one of your largest business expenses. Okay. So now the floor is yours. Tell us how to okay. do it. All right. Well, and, and, you know, you had me on the, on the radio before, and, you know, again, in my background, I was the CFO of a very large corporation. Uh, we did about $200 million in sale, 150 to $250 million. And, again, one of the luxuries we had was a tax planning department. And, of course, the sole purpose of this tax planning department was to help our firm pay the least amount in taxes. And, in fact, uh, you know, there were often years where, their tax bill was less than mine, their own CFO, and, and, and they certainly made a lot more money than I did. <laughs> and that was kind of an aha kind of moment for me because what really happens in the real world with businesses, and I'm seeing it, I mean, you know, the business returns are due on by Monday, March, whatever day that is, 17th. And um, what happens is the business, business owners are busy, they, you know, bring their pile of receipts in February and March, and there's not much an accountant can do at that point to save the business owner any any money. And so that's what really inspired me to write this book. I wanted to make a simple book to tell people that the book is all about tax planning. It's all about doing stuff at year end and always questioning why you're doing something. Why are you doing this? One of the first questions I ask people uh, is, okay, you're an LLC, why? And usually they say, well, it's for legal reasons and my friend's an LLC, or th- they don't know why they're an LLC. Um, and so what I try to do is question everything that they're doing and saying, is there a better way to do it that will result in a 
lower tax bill for you. And so it really puts the business owner into being more, because, you know, business owners are so busy trying to grow their business. I mean, I'm, I guess, a small business owner. We have less than 25 employees, but I'm trying to grow my business. I'm trying to manage my employees. I'm negotiating operating leases, and, you know, I'm working on the business. And your tax bill, again, is one of your largest business expenses. So why wouldn't you spend time at least planning quarterly, semi-annually, annually, you should be reviewing it and, and with your accountant and planning before year end so that you can have everything in place so that when it comes tax time, then you're not going to get a big surprise. Um, the, you know, the, the big surprises this year are going to come around April 15th or just about this time now when people see that there's new, you know, um, tax rates, there's... Um, exemptions that are that are uh, minimized this year uh, and uh, there are a lot more taxes um, f from the Affordable Care Act so a lot of people are starting to see that now we've already had a few clients come in and they were just you know they had a couple bombshells coming in and that's because they didn't do any planning before year in, before year in and it's too late now I mean we can do something for 2014 uh, so what I what I always tell people is that, listen, the, the number one mistake that you make as a business owner is failing to plan. Uh, I mean, it's just flat out. If you're just dropping off your tax returns at year end and having a phone conversation, because let, let's face it, your, your CPA, your accountant, is really busy. It, right now they're in what I call tax hell. <laughs> they're not fun to be around because they have – this deadline coming up to get the tax returns done. So you're not going to get their time right now. The time you're going to get is in September, October, November, when you should be sitting down with them and at least going through and trying to figure out, you know, what's the best action to take. Uh, so the, the, the second biggest mistake that people make is the wrong business entity. And Usually when somebody starts off, it may make sense at that point, but it may make sense down the road. Um, so, some of the things to keep in mind is uh, do you have a lot of medical expenses um, that you're not deducting on your personal returns because you're, you know, you're not getting over the, um, the AGI, the 7.5% AGI and 10% AGI for, for um, medical expenses. So there are ways to put that through LLCs and C-Corp, actually out-of-pocket expenses. Um, S-Corps we sometimes use to minimize payroll taxes. Um, so that's an often a common strategy as well. Um, so, so, Donald, from your standpoint, you were saying that you were just recently at a tax conference, correct? Right, correct. Uh, and and what was some of the concerns coming from that tax conference? Well, uh, I think um, mainly it, it, it dealt with three issues. The, the tax implication of Obamacare. Um, That's the, correct. Um, the, uh, the greater and uh, more the greater aggressiveness of the states in particular to, to go after small business for whatever um, revenue they can uh, generate because, as you just said, small businesses don't plan. And, uh, right. Um, 
and they often believe themselves in the pulpit. And, and the, uh, the, the other uh, major, uh, major thing was that uh, uh, the various uh, uh, taxes on employees, uh, uh, Obamacare, I forget what the percentage uh, uh, is, a certain tax now on, on the, uh, the disability and uh, all of the uh, FICAs, et cetera. And, uh, that, that, that is correct. Yes, that that is correct. There is a um, in in particular, there's one for that's an extra 0.9 percent um, percent on on FICA for Affordable Care Act. But there's also a 3.8 of unearned income, and there's some new rules that just came out on on what that is. And um, so, if you meet certain thresholds, you know. If you're single or married, there's certain thresholds um, for being over that. Then you have an extra 3.8 percent. So, on the Affordable Care Act, um, the one of the biggest things that that we're seeing from a business owner standpoint is people, business owners missing the tax credit. So let me explain how that works. Starting in 2010. For businesses with less than 25 employees that made less than $50,000 a year, there's a 35% tax credit for any health insurance that you as an owner provide. And you have to provide at least 50% of the, of, the, of the cost. So there's, it's, it's kind of a graduated grid. So the more money your employees made, the less of a credit you get. So if you had 25 employees all making 50 grand a year, your credit would be zero. But if you had a bunch of workers making $30,000 a year and you had 10 employees, you may get that 35% tax credit. So if you do the numbers, you know, and you're paying, I don't know, let's say $500 an employee, you know, times 12, that's $6,000, you could potentially get a 35% tax credit for that individual worker if you were paying 100% of their health care. Uh, and an interesting statistic that the Journal of Accountancy put out that the governmental accounting agency, agency said that in 2010, 4 million businesses, small businesses, were eligible for this tax credit, but yet right. only about 170,000 actually applied for it. Absolutely. Uh, and so, but what the, so what's happened in 2014 is that credit goes to 50%, and it's available for two years. The good news, and we've amended quite a few returns this year for new clients that we have, you know, you can go back a few years, three years, if if you didn't apply for this credit. So that's that that's a pretty good client when we come in and go, oh, you didn't get the health care credit, and we run the numbers on our spreadsheet, and, and then we apply, and sure enough, um, <laughs> you know, it comes back as a credit. And so, you know, the Affordable Care Act, um, was one of the most um, one of the most or the biggest uh, bill that's, that that's ever been done, and it had the most tax changes in since like 1970 for any one bill. Um, and oversight of it um, is is questionable to me as well, because you got the health agency and you got the IRS. The interesting thing about the IRS is they have jurisdiction over that penalty. So individuals 
have to have insurance. In fact, you know, we, we ask that, and, and employees are starting to report it. Um, so I forgot who it was today. Somebody told me today that they were doing their taxes on TurboTax, and, and the question was, was asked, do you have health care? Um, and so the way the IRS, the IRS now has jurisdiction on that penalty. So you have to have insurance by April 31st or you will, you'll get a penalty this year. And well, it's based on, it's based on your, your age. I'm sorry, it's based on, um, it's based on your, your income level and whether you're single and a number of other factors. But it starts at like $95 a year and it goes up and then it maxes out at like 2% of income. Well, but the interesting the, the thing. Inter- I'm sorry. Go ahead. Interrupt you. The Wall Street Journal today is reporting that uh, a little known, a little noticed um, announcement by the IRS has suspended that requirement for the next two years for just about everybody. Uh, it it it's such a moving part, Donald, that I. I, I give the Affordable Care Act presentations all the time, and, and I have <laughs> I, I would have to show you the folder. I know we're on we're on radio, but every time I give that speech, and I didn't see that I, I get the Wall Street Journal, but we're a little busy these days. Um, and every day I give every time I've ever given that speech, some major um, announcement was made that affected my presentation, and and I keep them all in there. And so here's the interesting thing about from the joint taxation on, on the penalty. The IRS has ju- jurisdiction of the penalty, okay? But it's not like when you don't pay taxes where they can, you know, accrue interest and charge you penalty. The IRS doesn't have that at their disposal. In fact, they can't even collect it from you. They can't come after your property for it. The only thing that they can really do is withhold any money that's due you. So if you're getting a refund of $400 and the penalty was $95, they would withhold that $95. However, if you owe them money and you over and you know underpaid every year and you, there's really they they really can't come after you. Um, from everything that I'm reading, I mean they they can't they can't put liens on your property, they can't do any of that. Um, so it, it's very interesting. Um, I'm going to look at that article of what what you just said. But the the W-2s that I've seen have have been inconsistent of whether they have insurance or not. It's a truly amazing. Uh, we're getting close to the end of our time. The name of your book and how people can get it and how they can talk to you. Uh, okay, talk. yeah. The, the name of the book is Bad Luck or Bad Business. It's on Amazon.com. And uh, my website is William Cummings, C-U-M-M-I-N-G-S, CFO.com. There's also, you can order it through there. You can also ask, ask me questions on there. You can also call me at 877-453-7737. And you can just tell them that you heard me on the radio show and would like to have uh, a quick talk. Usually when I meet with a client for the first time, um, and I and I have a lot of clients over the f- phone. Um, we do what's called a mini tax planning session. Uh, it usually takes about a half an hour. We don't usually charge for that. Um, and I I just look at their tax reviews because I, I mean their taxes because I'm trained to just look at it and I pinpoint certain things and go over it. 
and, and I usually know within about 20 minutes or so whether there can be some potential savings from an actual tax plan. We, we just did one this, um, this morning with somebody that um, was a referral. They called me on the phone, probably asked them six questions. I know I'm going to be able to help this guy in meeting with him again, bring in his tax stuff, and, and, and I know I can help them. Um, so just because you did it the same way last year doesn't make it right. Um, and, you know, change is good sometimes. So if, if you need a second opinion, just give me a call. And, Donald, I always enjoy being on, this, uh, on, the, on the call with you. You're very knowledgeable, and you're helping small businesses. And Lord knows we need all the help we can get. <laughs> well, last time you were on the show, we got a lot of comments, so that's why you're back on. Thank you. Okay, well, I, I appreciate it. And, again, if anybody... Um, I usually do a blog on my website on different topics, um, not just tax, but um, just all kinds of topics um, w regarding finances. So um, anyway, um, look out for that. And um, I also um, have a newsletter. It's not a normal financial newsletter that if people can opt in on to. It's um, more commentary on businesses and stuff like that. Uh, it's not your typical article, um, you finance articles. You don't pull punches either. No, I usually will say what <laughs> comes to my mind, and and I'll write commentary on something, and uh, and be what it is, you know. But um, I I do. I mean, it gets picked up a lot. I, I wrote a uh, a blog recently about the circle of life about. Um, because I'm at that age where my kids are in college and, and I have a father who's got Alzheimer's and, and one of my kids paid for dinner for the first time on their own and then offered to buy my dinner. And I was like, wow, you know, so I wrote a whole <laughs> blog about how that's a, it, it's come full circle and, and hopefully, hopefully she'll, she'll take care of me like I'm taking care of my dad, you know. <laughs> She's not suing you for her college education? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> No, that, that'll be thrown out of court. <laughs> well, let's hope so. But again, thank All you, All right. Bill. Hey, listen, you, you have a wonderful evening, okay? You too. Bye-bye. Okay, talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening. And we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're all here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you would like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine. You can subscribe for any or all of these by going to smallbusinessdigest.net that's smallbusinessdigest.net. Thank you, and have a good day.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.